0: I may be looking at the camera the whole time but Hebrews 2020 20, we see Jesus increment 155 the general subject will be this until the end until the end which is the last phrase in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11 and we'll get right to it Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11 Says, but we eagerly desire. The we there is plural, but it's a literary plural. It means that the PT that wrote this homily and intended for it to be read in a local congregation is speaking for himself. So it's a literary plural. So we could translate it, but I, the pastor teacher, eagerly desire. And that means the work. The word that he chooses there in the Greek means to desire with the intensity of a strong craving or lust. It's a yearning. It's a very strong yearning and longing, which pastors will understand. He says, we eagerly desire that every single one of you, again, the pastor, the shepherd, is concerned not just for the 99, but for the one and for each individual, His eager desire is that each and every one of the readers and hearers of this homily, and I would include the 21st century hearers and readers, each one of you shows, now the present middle infinitive of the verb endeknumi here, E-N-D-E-I-K-N, you'll see a lot more of the Greek in print when this comes out in the printed form, endeknumi, and that means to show or to demonstrate observably so that every single one of you show the self-same diligence. Another word that's very important in this context, the word diligence. And it's a Greek word, and from that Greek word we have our own word, speed. The Greek is spoudé, S-P-O-U-D-E spude and it's well translated as diligence we eagerly desire that every single one of you shows the same or the self same we could say diligence spude toward the plenary assurance of hope until the end and there's our phrase until the end until the end is ACRI, A C H R I, and then the word TELUS, T E L O U S, ACRI, TELUS. So our translation reads like this Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. But we eagerly desire that every single one of you shows the self same diligence toward the plenary assurance plenary assurance, or full assurance of hope until the end. And so now, Father, we pray that you'll bring this message to bear on the hearts of many and that you will cause it to be deposited in our souls like nails driven by the Holy Spirit to sponsor, to foster, to increase, and to cause our hope to overflow and give us great momentum of this hope so that we can communicate it to others in our time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, diligence is spude. According to the American Heritage College Dictionary, the fifth edition, it is earnest and persistent application to an undertaking. It's steady effort and attentive care. This brings up the transcendent precept, be attentive. To be diligent is to be marked by perseverance and steady effort. It indicates high motivation. Under synonyms in the American Heritage College Dictionary, fifth edition, is the following Diligent connotes steady, meticulous attention to an ongoing job or task. Like we've been saying through Hebrews. You have one job; we have one job, and we'll be looking at that again. The concept of diligence is highlighted in another passage, and I've shown before and will show again in the future, the tremendous correspondence of the Petrine epistles, first and second Peter with Hebrews in second Peter one one to five, we have a primary use of that word spoday for Diligence. It says this Simon Peter, slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received equally valuable faith by the saving act of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, this is my translation from the Greek text. First, 2 Peter 1 2 goes on to say, Grace and peace be multiplied to you by the knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us everything required for life and true worship. Life and true worship means what we call the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and virtue. Notice that he's called us to his own virtue, not to our own virtue signaling. Verse 4 goes on to say through which he has given to us precious and magnificent promises so that through their fulfillment you may become partakers of the divine nature as escapees from the corruption that is in the cosmos through unwarranted desire. Verse 5 and because of this be applying maximum diligence there's the word spoude in second peter be applying maximum diligence to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge knowledge with self-control self-control with perseverance and on it on it goes until it climaxes with the word agape Now, please notice in this passage, and we're going to find out later in Hebrews 6, the same idea, we are not escapees from the cosmos itself. We're in this world, but we're not of it. But we are escapees, as Peter puts it, from the corruption that is in the world through what the old timers used to call concupiscence, the desire for preeminence the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, including avarice and greed, the insatiable desire for more and more. Peter then speaks of escaping from the corruption that is in the world through lust. The Hebrews author speaks of his readers having, quote, fled for refuge in order to grasp the hope that is exhibited before us. Hebrews 6.18, fled for refuge in order to grasp the hope that is exhibited before us. I refer you to previous two messages called The Anatomy of Hope, which are going to really beef up our study today. So no matter what Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers said in their famous rock song, you do have to live like a refugee. Now, once in a while, you have a few people as old as me that will be able to relate to that song. We are escapees and refugees from the corruption that is in this world through the desire of the first woman to be wise, as Genesis put it, which which also replicated the desire of the serpent to be preeminent. The corruption that is in the world came into the world through distorted angelic aspiration. I'll say that again. The corruption that is in the world came into the world through distorted angelic aspiration and then through human desire to be like God or to be higher than God. We have escaped this corruption and have fled to Jesus for refuge and to lay hold of the hope that is incarnate in him. Here's a thesis for you for our study today. Hope is not full assurance until it becomes perfectly certain of all that is to be hoped for of God's will. In other words, your hope isn't what we call full assurance and that's another key word in our passage here. It's called plerophoria. Big word. P L E. R O P H O R I A, Plerophoria. Bible writers don't apologize for using big words. Plerophoria, very important word in our study today and in Hebrews and in the New Testament and in the Bible itself. Plerophoria. And that means full assurance or hope fully completed, or hope fully developed. Full assurance, complete, or what we might call plenary assurance, plerophoria. And again, here's the principle. Hope is not full assurance until it becomes perfectly certain of all that is to be hoped for in God's will. The word for full assurance is this word, plerophoria, and that's a long E, plerophoria. Phorea, In Hebrews six eleven, which is our focus verse today, largely speaking, anyways, the word is also found in Hebrews ten twenty two, but it's also found in other places in the Bible, including First Thessalonians one five, and Colossians two two. The verb form of this noun plerophoria, is playroflereo, flereo, p l e r. Make that P-L-E-R-O-P-H-O-R-E-O. Plero Foreo. And that one is found in Colossians chapter 4. It's worth reading and worth turning to unless you're driving. Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, Paul writes... A slave of Christ Jesus salutes you. He is always laboring earnestly in your behalf in his prayers that you would be caused to stand complete, another catchword also in Hebrews teleos, that you may be caused to stand complete. It also appears in Hebrews five fourteen complete. And be fully assured, there's Plero Pharao, with respect to every aspect of God's will. What do you pray for? You say, what should I pray for for the saints, for fellow believers, for people in my church? Well, imitate Epaphras, a slave of Christ Jesus. He's always laboring earnestly in your behalf in his prayers that you would be caused to stand complete and fully assured with with respect to every aspect of God's will. That's a prayer, and that is a fight in which we pray for that. We pray for that in the agona of the struggle of the ages. Now, it's no secret that Colossians resembles Ephesians in many ways with regard to subject matter. This is noticeably the case especially with the topic of the reconciliation of all things which Paul speaks of both in Ephesians 1:10 and Colossians 1:20. In fact, the recapitulation as Irenaeus called it, or the summing up of all things in Christ in the heavens and on earth is called the mystery of God's will, the mystery of God's will, and I have to write this word up here too. There's a, This is kind of a day for Greek words. It's thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A, T-H-Epsilon-E-L-A-D-E-M-A. Another catchword in the New Testament. Thelema for God's will is also used in Ephesians one nine and in one eleven verses which straddle Ephesians 1.10, which talks about the summing up of all things in Christ, which, again, should be the focus of a fully developed hope. If it isn't, your hope isn't fully developed. Thelema, for God's will, then, is found not only in Colossians 4.12, but also in Ephesians 1.9 and 1.11, Verses which straddle that so powerful verse in Ephesians 1.10. The mystery of God's will, Thelema, that is, of the one who affects everything in keeping with the unstoppable determination of his will, that's the way Ephesians 1.11 puts it, is to bring all of history to its redemptive goal in Christ. This is an unstoppable determination of God's will. He said, I will do all my will in Isaiah 46.10. I wouldn't disagree with him on that. I wouldn't reply against that. I wouldn't object. And so the mystery of God's will, that's what he calls it in 9 which is also of the one who affects everything in keeping with the unstoppable determination of his will in one is to bring all of history to a redemptive conclusion in Christ. And that is to make all times simultaneous and to gather together in Christ everything in heaven and on earth. Ephesians one ten. Imagine all the people in ancient history and in the future and in present times and current times living in the same generation, living contemporaneously. The only way that that can be effected is through resurrection and the bringing together of all times into a simultaneity in future world. So that's God's plan. It's to make all times simultaneous and to gather together in Christ everything in heaven and on earth. Now the point that I'm making here that is this, to stand complete and fully assured of all the will of God means not only to be perfectly certain of God's will in one or two matters about our personal lives, for example, but it means to be perfectly assured that God has irrevocably determined to sum up or recapitulate all of created reality and to sum up all time and history in Jesus Christ, his son. So you can say you know the will of God, but if you don't know that part of the will of God, your hope is incomplete. So we are not standing complete and fully assured of all that God has willed, to use the language of Colossians 4.12, unless we are fully assured and absolutely confident that the triune God has willed the restoration of all things. Now, I'm going to repeat these two things I just said because they too can be called theses, T-H-E-S-E-S, plural of thesis, for our study in Hebrews. One, to stand complete and fully assured of all the will of God means not only to be perfectly certain of God's will in one or two matters about our personal lives, but to be perfectly assured that God has irrevocably determined to sum up or recapitulate all of created reality and sum up all time and history in Jesus Christ, his son. Two, we are not standing complete and fully assured of all that God has willed unless we are fully assured and absolutely confident that the triune God has willed and determined ir- it determined resolutely the restoration of all things. We find that in Acts 3.21, of course. A Christian may be fully assured that it is the will of God that he or she be sanctified and should avoid sexual immorality, for example. They would certainly not be wrong about this because the, the scripture is as plain as it can be when it says, this is the will of God, thelema. To theu. this is the will of God, Thalema. to Thau for you, your sanctification, and that you should abstain from fornication, First Thessalonians 4.3. So that's to be assured of something about the will of God, but not all the will of God. This is not to be fully assured of all the will of God, though it certainly is a part of the will of God. Likewise, a saint may be assured that it is, quote, God's will in Christ Jesus, again the word thelema to Thau or thelema theu en Christo Jesu, we'll have that in print also, that you could be assured also that it's God's will in Christ Jesus for him or her to give thanks in all circumstances. And you certainly wouldn't be wrong because, again, the scripture couldn't be plainer than 1 Thessalonians 5.18, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus that you give thanks in all circumstances. So that a saint would be absolutely correct to be assured that thankfulness is God's will. So in that sense, you can say, I know that it's God's will for me to have gratitude, to be thankful in all circumstances. You'd be right. And however... If you're going to stand complete and fully assured of all that God has willed and thus to have the full assurance of hope, which is the focus of Hebrews 6.11, that's to be assured of all that God has willed. I'll say that again. That's a really even simpler thesis. To have the full assurance of hope is simply to be assured of all that God has willed. I will do all my will, he says. Again, God has willed that all things be reconciled in heaven and on earth and that all times and all of creation be summed up in his son. Are you assured of that? Then you're not fully assured of all of God's will. And I speak for myself, too. Years ago, I could not say that. I didn't know about the restoration of all things and that it was God's irrevocable will. So this is something that God has resolutely determined. God has willed that all things be reconciled in heaven and on earth and that all times and all creation be summed up in his son who is called the son of his love. In Colossians 1.12. This is something, and I can't stress this enough, that God has resolutely determined. Ephesians 1.11 compared with Isaiah 46.10. And it is something that he will bring about through the peace that he made through the blood of the cross of the son of his love. Colossians one twenty. Now, a Christian who is assured that God's will is for their practical sanctification and that God's will for us in Christ Jesus is gratitude, but who does not have the full assurance of hope in God for the the restoration of all things is a lopsided Christian. Likewise, a saint who has the full assurance of universal restoration and may proclaim and preach that, but who disagrees with the declaration that God will judge adulterers and the sexually immoral, as Hebrews 13.4 says, that Christian is also lopsided, unbalanced, and unstable. He or she is not standing and fully assured of all the will of God. So Epaphras' prayers are a perfect example of what we ought to pray for, for ourselves and for all the saints that we may be caused to stand. The passive is understood there, according to A.T. Robertson, even though most translators don't put it passive but active, that we can only be caused to stand in the full assurance of hope if we are fully assured of all that God has willed in his redemptive and salvific plan. This is what we pray for. Praying for all the saints, praying for all your friends, praying for those who are not yet Christians, that they would be caused to stand complete in the full assurance of all that God has willed. So following the message on the plenary manifestation of love, which we proclaimed two time, three times ago, and the two-part anatomy of hope, which we just finished in our previous two increments the next verse hits home with more force than ever because of those lead-in messages. Hebrews 6.11, here is again the translation so far. But we earnestly desire that each and every one of you shows the same diligence toward the full assurance of hope until the end. Each and every one of you. Even closer to the subject in Hebrews, the verb form of full assurance... That is of plerophoria, the verbal form is deployed regarding Abraham in romans four twenty and twenty one and I'm hinting at something at a direction we're going to be taking in hebrews six thirteen to fifteen and then again in hebrews eleven eight to nineteen the Abraham files or the Abraham papers in romans four twenty to twenty one a corresponding section, it says that Abraham, in verse 20 of Romans 4, didn't waver in unbelief regarding God's promise, but he was strengthened in his faith. The word piste is used there, as it's used 18 times in Hebrews 11. Piste, as it's used of Abraham in Hebrews 11.8, 11, 11, 11.9, and 11.17. So once again, Romans 4.20, Abraham didn't waver in unbelief regarding God's promise, but he was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God because he was fully convinced. Fully convinced is the aorist passive participial form of that verb, plero, p l e r o p h o r e. Plero Phoreo fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to do. Now this is going to come powerfully into play when we consider Abraham's exemplary faith in Hebrews 6 again 13 to 15. I'm already preparing in that section and 11, 8 to 19 also always and also already preparing in that section. But back to Hebrews 6.11. Hebrews 6.11 is an intensely goal-oriented verse. It really captures the whole goal of the exhortation of the pastor-teacher in the Hebrews homily. The full assurance of hope reveals the goal of this homily to be that which we would call the plenary manifestation of hope and the expectation toward Jesus whom we see crowned with glory and honor, and whom we see as our own destiny. That's how hope is linked to Jesus and how Jesus is our hope. When we see Jesus with the eyes of our heart and the eyes of our understanding, opened by the Holy Spirit, we see our own destiny in glory and honor, in resurrection. He embodies our destiny. And he embodies the destiny, in fact, of all of humanity in solidarity and of all of creation in all of its times. So the same diligence that they are to show toward the plenary manifestation of hope is the diligence that they demonstrated in the very beginning of their spiritual history which is recalled in Hebrews 10:32 to 34 it's a sad reality that when christians are first awakened to hope and faith and love when they're first awakened to the gospel they have a zeal an enthusiasm and a diligence that wanes over the course of time hebrews is to pick up such christians and to fortify and in fact to bring back the original zeal and enthusiasm and diligence that they expressed in their early Christianity, and then some. So the writer recalls to them, as Paul recalled to the Galatians who had been slipping away in Galatians 4, the writer here recalls their former history and just how diligent they were, and just how faithful they were, and how excited enthusiastic they were, and how intense their hope was. And I'm going to read again, and I've referred to this many times, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. This, again, is a recollection of the diligence that this same group demonstrated in the very beginning of their spiritual history Hebrews 10:32 to 34. But remember the early days in which, upon being enlightened, you endured a difficult struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were taunted and publicly shamed and afflicted. Today, it would be doxed and trolled and criticized and shamed and maligned and slandered in many different ways. At other times, he said, you became companions of those who were so treated, meaning you were not afraid to identify with Christians under persecution. You weren't distancing yourself from them when they were persecuted. You identified with them. He goes on to say you had compassion on those who were imprisoned. Just as Paul threw many Christians into prison, many Christians were imprisoned for their faith." in early Christianity as they are today in places like China you had compassion on those who were imprisoned that is imprisoned for their faith and their confession of Jesus as the Son of God and this is a stunner this one kind of stunned me when I read it and convicted me too and you welcomed the confiscation of your property with joy what? You welcomed the confiscation of your property with joy. Ten harpagen ton huparkonton human metakares pros dexaste. In other words, and I mispronounced that phrase in the Greek, but I tried to read it anyways. You welcomed... The word welcome there, prostekamai, means the kind of thing you do to welcome guests in your home that you've invited and that you're entertaining and that you're joyously receiving into your home. He said you receive the same people who are confiscating your property under the orders of the government. You receive them with joy. The explanation comes right after that. Knowing that you have an enduring possession, an enduring property, meaning in future world. That's how convinced and how close they were in their mind to future world. They knew they had an enduring possession in future world that could never be confiscated, from which they could never be evicted. They could never be destroyed or burned with fire, or blown away with hurricanes or typhoons, or washed away with tsunamis or eaten up by termites or insects, or broken into by thieves or burglars. It's very difficult, and I speak for myself, but I think I'm speaking for a lot of other people who are in a prosperous nation called America. It's very difficult for most of us to conceive of the idea of someone welcoming the seizure of their property with joy, Metacaris with joy, Usually we welcome invited guests into our homes with joy. But it's entirely counterintuitive, remember that word from the anatomy of hope, it is entirely counterintuitive to welcome the seizure of our homes with joy. The only way to make sense of this is to see and really to welcome for ourselves the idea of a transcendent way of being that is intensely oriented to future world and identified with Jesus, the Son of Man, who said himself, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8.20 This kind of joy isn't the kind of joy that we even can relate to in most of our daily lives. This kind of joy also was shown by the apostles, who were, quote, rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor. Think of that. They were rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor on behalf of the name of Jesus in acts 541 what kind of living what kind of being what kind of way of being and way of living is this well it's something beyond ourselves it's something outside of ourselves it's something we are entirely incapable of even conceiving of when we're occupied with ourselves and preoccupied with ourselves with our whole attention being curved in on ourselves This diligence that we've been speaking of is the zeal and enthusiasm that the recipients of Hebrews showed while being highly motivated by their love for God's name as demonstrated in their joyful service of the saints. The subject of 6.10 of Hebrews, especially those saints who are being persecuted and imprisoned for their confession of Jesus as the Son of God. Some people know Christians when those Christians are popular and they're happy to say, oh, yes, I know him. Oh, yes, I went to Bible school with him. Oh, yes, I was in seminary with him. Oh, yes, I sat under him. Until he's maligned and slandered and accused and made to look guilty in front of the whole world, then it's all, I don't know. Oh, yeah, well, I kind of knew him. I didn't really. I was always kind of doubting what he was saying. I always wondered about him. I, yeah, I, and they'd start to distance themselves. Or like Peter, they may even say, I never knew the damn guy, and curse, who knows? That's the way it is with lots of people, and uh, that's just human nature. Human nature apart from the supernatural spiritual life, that is. And so, this diligence even entailed, at the time, the confiscation of their earthly possessions with joy. That is, if they kept standing with those who were persecuted, and if they kept confessing their faith in Jesus Christ, at that time, they could lose their homes. They could lose their occupations. They could lose their social standing, for sure. They could lose their membership in any number of clubs. And so, this diligence, early on, entailed the confiscation of their earthly possessions, but they endured it with joy. The reason that they could endure such a thing with joy was precisely because of the intensity of the hope that they had with regard to their enduring possessions in future world, their true riches. Now, this theme carries on throughout the homily all the way to the end. Sometimes people can become shy about their faith and their hope. When it can result in economic loss, as well as social criticism, social media criticism, ostracism, economic loss, social shaming, and even imprisonment and execution are things that human beings can do to us. But all the way near the end of the Hebrews homily, the writer says this in Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. Let your way of being be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For God himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently declare, the Lord is my helper. Boethos, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? the point you can't serve god and mammon eastern bible dictionary says that mammon means wealth or riches and also by personification mammon means the god of riches matthew 6:24 luke 16:9 to 11 so you can't serve two gods you can't serve god and you can't serve the god of earthly riches at the same time, you either come to hate one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. So here's the principle the way I see it after considering these things. There is a dishonor that is honorable in the kingdom of God. And there is also an honor in this world that's really a shame. Shame. The glory of the enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3.18 and 19 is in reality a shame. Paul said that blatantly. The dishonor and shame heaped on and experienced by those who love the name of Jesus in this world is really an honor. The world loves its own and the world overprotects its own. We see this all over the place in the injustices of our own time. The world loves its own, and it overprotects its own. The prince of this world rewards his willing and happy subjects. But in this world, the lovers of God and the true followers of Jesus will suffer hatred by this world. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 15:19, if you were of this world... The world would love you as its own, but because you're not of this world, on the contrary, I've called you out of this world, the world hates you. He uses the word world, cosmos, five times in John fifteen nineteen, always in a negative connotation. The world loves its own. So you see, you look on the news and you see people that are unfairly treated, and then you see people that are astonishingly, astonishingly let off from horrific crimes and let go. Why? Because the world loves its own. That's why. The world loves its own and hates those that are called out of it and who testify against it, obviously. That's why they crucified Jesus. So then, the world loves its own, just like a tyrannical and murderous government loves those who kowtow to it, apologize for it, kneel to it, benefit from it economically, and never speak out against its atrocities. Like people who benefit economically from being connected to China, who kneel to them, bow to them, apologize to them if there was ever any offensive thing they ever said or did against them while they turn around and hate America and protest the freedom they have in the United States of America. That's a rampant. That's an evil trend of our time. And we are in a state of corruption in our nation that's gone further than anyone can imagine, than any one of you that are listening can imagine. And there's only one hope, and it's a renaissance of history that comes about through the pure grace of God through people who live beyond themselves and in Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit and who redeem the time, in Ephesians 5.16 and Colossians 4.5. So, the phrase until the end, in Hebrews 6.11, is acri telus, A-C-H-R-I, acri, T-E-L-U, O-U-S until the end according to Thayer Acri denotes quote the reach to which a thing is said to extend and he says that it quote signifies up to the idea of up to he also notes then that the adverb "mekri" there's a word that means almost the same thing and I want to bring this in because it's very important Mekri is similar to it, M E C H R I, a similar adverb. The adverb Mekri is also important here. And it too indicates extent or the phrase as far as. And the primitive distinction, he calls it, between Mekri and Akri is often disregarded. And each particle is used of the same thing. So the Byzantine text, which is the majority text of the New Testament, has mechritelous, M-E-C-H-R-I-T-E-L-O-U-S, in Hebrews 3.6. There, Mekri means as far as or to the point of. The readers of Hebrews, therefore, as we've seen many times already before, and I hope I've emphasized it enough not to be forgotten. The readers of Hebrews are to quote hold on tight to the boast of their hope tachema ta Elpidos until the end Mecri Telus. In Hebrews three hundred fourteen, in both the Byzantine and Nestle Allen Greek texts, the readers are told to quote hold on to the original reality hypostasis, the original reality which is the same as to saying their faith and hope, their original reality until the end, mechritelus. And so they are to hold on to the same fervent hope, the same faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, that they had at the start until the end. telus, Hebrews 3.6, 3.14. telus and Akritelus, which is found in Hebrews 6.11, our focus today, are dynamically equivalent adverbial phrases. As hope is held on to, it develops and this is extremely important. It's a final point that will, well, not a final point, but another point that we'll make in today's message. As hope is held onto, retained, maintained, it develops from confident assurance to an absolutely unshakable assurance. Again, the adverb mechri, M E C H R I, is generally equivalent to the adverb Akri. Akri is used in 6.11. Mecri is used in the Byzantine text of 3.6 and in all Greek texts of 3.14. So, again, it's a central exhortation to hold our faith and keep our faith as, the, as things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, until the end. It's our one job. It's our one job. And so, once again, the adverb Mekri is generally equivalent to the adverb acri in Hebrews 6.11 mecri is used twice in Philippians in connection with death and this is important in Philippians 2.8 it describes the extent of the obedience of Jesus quote to the extent of death hyphen the death of the cross there, Mecri indicates an obedience to the extent of death and until death. Now, Paul was probably quoting a hymn there, which was already extant at the time of the writing of Philippians in two six and to eleven. But I also believe, with others like Cosman, that he added his own emphatic phrase to this hymn, called the death of the cross. The hymn says he was obedient to the extent of death. Paul then added, hyphen, the death of the cross, exclamation point. He did this in order to assert that Jesus' death was not just the kind of death that everyone dies. His wasn't just another death by crucifixion that was endured by hundreds of thousands of men and women at the time and even more recently in certain places where there is tyrannical rule and anti-Christian sentiment, ethnic cleansing, etc. It was the death of the cross. That was the extent of Jesus' obedience. Mechri thanatu, death. Thanatu de staru. The death of the cross, the Greek is emphatic. The experience, in other words, of absolute death, the wages of sin for everybody. Hebrews 2 9. That's mind boggling. As always and as ever, the Holy Spirit prompts me to have Jesus Christ and Him crucified be at the center and the core and be the essence of every message. There is a powerful resonance of Philippians 2.8 in Hebrews 2.9 and 10, as well as in Hebrews 5.8 and 10.5 through 10. In Philippians 2.30, Paul deploys the same adverb, in connection with death, while commending Epaphroditus, another guy whose name began with E.P., Not Epaphras this time, but Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.25-2.30. He called him his fellow soldier whose selfless service for Christ was to the point of death, Mekri Thanatu. Though Epaphroditus was spared, and God did not spare his unique son, but freely gave him over in behalf of us all. In Romans 8.32. So both mecri and acri are used to express spatial extent. And mean as far as. And also temporal extent. Until. And they both are often associated with the extent of death. Now all this is going to make sense. I know it sounds like a lot. But it's all going to make sense as we focus on our last moment here. Acts 22. 4 also associates Meccary or until with death. The point that I'm making here is that Hebrews 6.11, as well as Hebrews 3.6 and 3.14, urge the readers, including us in the 21st century, to hold on to our hope until the end, which usually means until death. For us, it either means until death or until the event of the parousia or the second appearance of Christ. We are to hold on tight to the hope until we die. So here it is, very simply reduced. We have said before that we've learned in Hebrews, we have one job. Let's expand this a little. We have one job until we die. You never retire from that job, holding on to hope, until it becomes a full and complete assurance of all that God has willed. And we do this until the end. When Paul was certain that his death was imminent, he expressed assurance that there was a crown of righteousness awaiting him after his death. A crown that would be given to him by the Lord. The righteous judge, he called him, Jesus himself. The reason for this assurance on the part of Paul is that Paul, by his own admission, had, quote, kept the faith, fought the good fight, and finished the course that was set before him. He fought the good fight. He finished the race, and he kept his faith in that order. Now the use of three perfected tensed or perfect tensed verbs fought, finished, and kept are a triple indication that he had held on to the hope. And by that we mean faith is the substance and assured assurance of what is hoped for. He kept the faith, which meant he kept the faith that is the assurance of things hoped for. Hebrews eleven one until the end. Again, because he had kept the faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, he could reasonably and confidently expect that what awaited him was reward in the form of a crown of righteousness, which the Lord Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor, will give him on that day, the day of Christ. And Paul was also assured that he would give that crown not only to Paul, but to all those who will have loved Jesus' epiphany, loved his coming, in 2 Timothy 4.8. That is why the author of Hebrews' homily intensely desired for each and every one of his readers and hearers to show diligence for the completion of their hope until the end. That's why. Confident hope has a great reward Confident hope has a great reward. Hebrews 10.35 One that even surpasses the great salvation that we are not to neglect. Great is one's reward in heaven who has endured opposition for their hope in this life and who has kept their hope despite that opposition. Finally, the question remains. I intended the message I'm doing today to possibly be two messages, but I'm going to do it all as one. Meaning it's kind of dense in its content. The question remains, how do we hold on to this hope? This question is answered by a person named Preisker, P-R-I-E-S-K-E-R. I think he's a German theologian. He's quoted in... David Peterson's book called Hebrews and Perfection, about halfway through that now. In note number 70 on page 285 of Peterson's book called Hebrews and Perfection, he quotes Prasker, or Prasker, however you pronounce it, as saying this in the theological dictionary of the New Testament. Quote, this is connected with the fact that the recipients of the epistle do not have the vitality of assured and persevering faith. When Christian faith shows exhaustion both in breathing in, parenthesis, hearing and receiving, and in breathing out, parenthesis, believing confidence in the future. The author of Hebrews calls his readers Nothroi. Remember that word? Well, it's coming back. N-O-T-H- R-O-I. Now, I cited this quote in order to answer the question. How do we hold on to this hope? I've asked that of the Lord. And then I wait for the answer, and sometimes you wait eight years for an answer. Well, the answer is we hold on to this hope by breathing in, which is hearing and receiving the word of God, like you're doing now. So we hold on to the hope by breathing in, By hearing and receiving the word of God which assures the inevitable exhale which is believing confidence in the future. That's how we hold the hope. We keep on breathing in the word of God, hearing it with faith. We keep on exhaling it with believing confidence in the future. Something that can not only be demonstrated and shown but communicated to others. To continue in the word is to continue in the faith and to hold on to the hope. As the spirit in us yearns for eternal life for us in the future world. So this PT, and may I say also this PT, yearns for each and every one of his readers and hearers to hold on to hope as it develops into full assurance and to do this until the end. The telos, T-E-L-O-S, is the eschatological end. We find it in 1 Corinthians 15:24. It's spoken of by Paul in the context of a resurrection and the final submission of the Son, SON, and of all created reality to God, resulting in the universal perichoresis when God is all and all God is in all and all is in God. Either way, you slice it Acre telus in Hebrews 6.11 denotes unrelenting diligence applied to the perseverance of hope 1 Thessalonians 1.3 compared with Hebrews 10.35 and 36 until we die but then we did die and our lives are hid with Christ in God so we keep pressing on to the fullest development of hope until the end again hope is our only job the fervency of love for one another in First 1 Peter 1.22 and Hebrews 6.10 should be matched by a fervent hope. Today, people want justice, but they don't want Christ. They reject the word of the cross. Today, people also want to engage in social service, many times by a true altruistic drive, but they lack hope in God they fear ecological disaster or the end of the world and so they become unhinged without hope without a vision without seeing jesus people perish and so do all their projects at the opposite end of the spectrum however there is a plenary manifestation of love in christian maturity hebrews 6:1 6, 6:10 1, 6, 1 john 2:5 and 4:18 there's a world of difference between a christian who walks around proclaiming their Christianity and a mature Christian? The world hasn't seen many of those. There is also a plenary manifestation of the hope in the state of Christian adulthood. It's called, quote, the full assurance of hope, ten playophorion tais elpidos, Hebrews six eleven. The Christian life, the higher integration of human living that is largely counterintuitive. And outside of ourselves in Christ is a life which the Holy Spirit causes hope to overflow in us. This same Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts in Romans five five, causes hope to overflow in us in Romans 15.13. The Holy Spirit using the scriptures causes hope to become fully developed in us to the point where it overflows to others. And becomes even infectious or contagious. The communication of hope to others is a part of what it means for us to become agents of God's beneficence and benevolence to others. Every person who has fully taken refuge in Jesus as our hope becomes a refuge for others in times of anxiety and growing despair. As Isaiah 32.2 says, Each will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the rain, like streams of water in a dry land and the shade of a massive rock in an arid land. Father, may that be so for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.